Hi, I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Courtney. And this is Caffeinated Crimes. I love when Courtney surprises me with the record button. She's just like, nope, we're going now. And good luck. And then um, mid-sentence. I got my burp out and then I was going forward. <laughs> She's like, I'm good. Hope you are. Here we go. Um, also, <laughs> I have something to confess that I did not realize until this moment um, that I've not read the notes <laughs> for this episode in the slightest. <gasps> I even finished it on Sunday to give you an extra, like, two days. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Um, yeah, I was going to read them at some point. Yesterday, I started a new book, so I just, like, got sucked into that and didn't think about it. And then today, <laughs> work was crazy. I actually was busy and worked all day. And then I went to an event tonight that I worked. And then I got home at, like, 8.15. And then I shoved dinner in my face. And then... Because on my way home, I thought about it and I was like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to read it while I'm eating dinner. And then mm-hmm. Andrew was talking to me and then I forgot about it. And then we sat down <laughs> and talked. And then literally, as as I started saying my name, I was like, I don't know what this episode's about. <laughs> so uh, do we need to make it an espresso. No, we got this. I'm going to okay. I'm going to nail this. I'm going to impress right. myself. I think this is the first time that's ever happened where one of us like legit has not read too. the notes. And why are you doing this when I'm editing? <laughs> OK, so how about this? So if it does not go well then you can send me the file and i'll edit okay it does go well then you can edit there we go there we go we'll figure it out i mean we both have to edit this week anyway so exactly it'll be fine or i'll get a paragraph in and she's gonna be like would you please shut up i'm gonna tell this story (laughs) i think you'll be good you'll be good you're just gonna practice like you're a news anchor or you're just like reading it like on the spot that's true we're Mm -hmm. we're gonna test out our skills we've been doing this four years now recording because we recorded our first episodes yeah. in like february so four years we've been doing this i got this i got yeah. this. and i mean even I when we like even when i like research and write the entire episode i still fuck up so. yeah same, same and even when i read over the notes i still fuck up so <laughs> so maybe this will be the way to do it from now on we'll see I don't know. Oh, geez. I'm really sorry to you, Courtney, and to these listeners. <laughs> I I think it's going to be a choose-your-own-adventure. We'll yeah. Just... I also, like I said, I love that I thought about it on the way home. of like, okay, great. I'm going to eat my dinner. I got enough time to eat and read my notes. And then just, well, also, so I got home. Okay. I'm so sorry. Let me tell 18 stories at once like I do. Um, Last week, we mentioned to you guys that we were in this wonderful snowstorm. Um, It was quite the snowstorm, guys. Like, it Mm -hmm. was very early on last week. Um, Today, I left my house for the first time in, like, nine days, I think, um, because I live at the top of a hill, and it's been solid ice. So, Mm -hmm. where was I going with the story? So, I got home tonight from the event that I was working and I was like, I need to put my trash cans up to the curb because it hasn't been collected in two weeks because they didn't collect at all last week. Um, So, of course, it's now twice as heavy as it normally is. And I live on a very steep hill. So I'm like lugging this heavy trash can all the way up the hill that's very icy. Um, It was quite a workout. So I think once I did that, my brain just forgot that there was anything else I needed to do tonight. You know, I mean, maybe it's good for you that you'll only have to read this like as you go, because this one is just really sad oh geez okay well at least and i'll really have depressing. to read it once then so that is yeah, a positive it's, it's really sad so great okay so 
Before we get into the sad, though, um, we do want to shout out our newest patron subscriber, Patreon subscriber. I don't know what they're called. This lovely human being who joined our Patreon. Um, so thank you so much, Julie, for joining. We really appreciate you. We are happy to have you here. We hope you're enjoying all of that bonus content. Um, and if you want to be like Julie and join our Patreon, mm -hmm. it is patreon.com slash caffeinated crimes, where this week you are getting your 41st bonus episode, um, a little 2023 recap of all the major stuff that happened last year. And... All those other episodes that you can check out, you can get a pin, you can get a sticker, you can chat with us in the Discord. We got lots of stuff going on. So come be like mm -hmm. Julie and join us. Yes, be like Julie and jo join us. Um, Thank you, Julie. Yes, and we do only have one update this week. Um, and we did see that Scott Peterson, I was like, is it Peterson or Patterson? I almost forgot. Scott <laughs> Peterson's <is> case. <laughs> Well, there's also, I think the staircase is Michael Patter, or is he Peterson too? Anyway, it does not matter. It doesn't matter. Scott Peterson, that man, the Innocence Project has actually picked up his case. So yeah. that'll be very interesting to see what they find, what they discover. That's a very hotly debated case. Yeah. Um, and that was one of our first episodes that we ever mm -hmm. did. So Yeah. Interesting to wonder, see where that'll go. Yeah, definitely. I kind of wonder, like, if there's stuff that they know that, like, the public doesn't know yet for, like, because I feel like they usually only take, like, fairly strong cases. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think they usually take cases that are, like, questionable in any way. I feel like the issue with this one is I feel like, if I remember correctly, there wasn't that much hard evidence. It was a lot of, yeah. like, circumstantial yeah. evidence. So I exactly. wonder if it's, like... I feel like the Innocence Project, like, he might not be innocent, but he might not have had enough to be convicted, you know? Yeah, true, true. So I, think, I, I mean, that's what we said all that. along. Like, we don't mm -hmm. know if he's actually guilty or not, but we don't think there's enough evidence to find him guilty in the court of law. So, yeah, it could just yeah. be that. Yeah. I guess we'll see. Yeah. Stay tuned. Yeah. All right. We're going to go ahead and get into this one. Um, our sources were the Lost Women of Highway 20 documentary. Um, it was a great documentary. If you guys want to go, it was a three episode. It was very good. Um, the Hill and the Oregonian, they had like a series also called Ghost of Highway 20. So many women went missing or were found murdered along Highway 20 in Oregon. And when Rochanda Pickle went missing in 1990, it helped show how one man may have been responsible all along. So Highway 20 runs from Boston, Massachusetts to Newport, Oregon. And it's actually the longest road in the United States and runs through 12 states. Wow, so, that's very interesting. Yeah, never would have guessed that one to be the longest. Um, but it is 3,365 miles long. And if you drove it straight, it would probably take like a week because like if you there, I mean, there's no way you could get in your car and go straight. But if you did, um, it would take 52 to 60 hours, like just straight wow. driving time, like no yeah. stopping anything. So on July 11th, 1990, 13-year-old Richanda Rich Leah Pickle disappeared from her home. Um, she lived at Santiam Junction, where Highway 22 and Highway 20 met. Um, so this was like a little compound with like five or six houses, like in the middle of nowhere. It's like you're driving down a road and you see like a little clump of houses and then there's nothing else <laughs> there. Um, 
And they were actually about 25 miles from the nearest town. So they actually had to go to like a certain spot to get like bused into a different town to go to school. Like there's not oh, even wow. a school in this area. Mm-hmm. So she did have a brother named uh, Byron and her mother, Linda had married Steve Pickle and had both of them. So Linda and Steve didn't really get along very well. They fought often. They would use like the kids as pawns and their fights. Not a good couple basically didn't really work out and they did end up getting divorced. After that, Steve didn't really come around as much, and Linda really struggled trying to survive on one income, so Linda eventually started dating John Aykroyd. He was a mechanic, and he they got married in the mid-1980s, and when Roshanda was around six is when they decided to move to the junction, which is where John Aykroyd lived. So, Richanda was very much into the latest fashion and pop music. Byron said he would definitely call her, like, a diva. Like, she was funny and goofy, and she had a presence about her, and she just loved staying up to date with all, like, the latest stuff that was going on. Like, especially, like, in the 90s, you know, there's all the different, like, hairstyles and outfits, and, like, she loved all of it. Mm-hmm. And in 1990, Rochanda and Byron got to spend time with Steve and try to get to know him. Um, so Rochanda had actually gotten into a fight with Steve and decided to go home. Like they were supposed to spend like the whole summer basically with him. And then he, they got into a fight because she wanted to go somewhere and he was just saying very mean things to her. And she was like, you know what? I'm done. I don't, I don't have to be here. I don't have to <laughs> yeah. stay here. Um, but Byron did decide to stay with Steve and so Byron was actually with his father when Linda called him about Richanda missing. So they contacted all of Richanda's friends. Uh, no one really believed she ran away, like especially not alone. Um, and like where she lived was so remote. It's not like she could easily run away. So they kind of traced back the following day. So on July 10th, John and Linda had gone to work and only Richanda would be home. So Linda asked her to do some chores around the house. Um, John, you know, picked up Linda once she got off work and Richanda was not home. So they started to get like really concerned. So on July 10th, Richanda's mom, Linda reached out to Byron and wondered if he'd heard from her. So Byron was trying to think of like all the places she could be. And he knew that she wouldn't go into the woods alone. Cause she was just really scared of them. They were really intimidating. Again, this is just little compound in the middle, just surrounded by woods. And he was like, there's no way she would have gone by herself into these woods. So Linda thought she had to wait 24 hours to report her missing. And so she didn't call until July 11th. And the 911 operator did kind of give her like major attitude about not calling sooner, which I was like, but if she did call, you probably <laughs> would have. Exactly. Like that's so frustrating because when you do call immediately, they're like, oh, your kid's been missing for an hour. Like call us back tomorrow. If she's not home. Like that's mm-hmm. the response you always get. Like. And they, like, played another 911 call where they were, like, my daughter's missing. And he was, like, oh, what? You mean, like, a runaway? So it was, Mm -hmm. like, weird, the reactions. Like, oh, what? A runaway? And then this other operator is, like, that's not true at all for children. Like, why would you wait? Are you not concerned or whatever? And it's, like, oh, my gosh. You can't win. Yeah. That's truly what it is. (laughs) And, like, I don't blame her for thinking it's, like, I mean, a lot of people still think that it's, like, oh, you can't report Mm -hmm. them missing until 24 hours. Like, a lot of police departments will still tell you that. And you have to, like, argue and say, like, no, that is not a law. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, I don't blame her for thinking that that's true, though. Yeah. 
So all of her Chanda stuff was still in her room. So if she ran away, like she probably would have taken like some of her makeup, some personal items. People don't really typically run away with just the clothes on their back. So search and rescue teams from seven different counties were gathering together to do a 50 mile search. And a lot of volunteers showed up as well. So John tried to help like the volunteers to figure out where to go. John grew up here, lived here. He knew these woods very, very well. Um, and Linda was convinced Rochanda had been kidnapped. Like she doesn't think she just walked away. She did think something like that had happened to her. And whenever people in the area heard about Rochanda missing, it kind of reminded them of another women, woman who went missing 12 years earlier. So Camp Sherman is 20 miles east of the junction and Camp Sherman is a vacation resort community. Um, there's only one store in the whole place <laughs> so it's kind of a gathering point for people and it was owned by gary and chrissy weston so they kind of knew everyone like people coming in the vacation they kind of saw everyone because it was the only place you could kind of go for anything you needed at that point so on christmas eve morning in 1978 Kay turner was vacationing in camp sherman oregon um, she was from eugene oregon and so she went for a hike down the road and never returned and Gary and Chrissy, the owners, decided to help her husband, Noel, like looking for her because he was kind of like came to the store and was like, I can't find my wife. I don't know. I'm not from here. I don't know where she is. So they kind of went driving around and expected to find her with like a sprained ankle or just gotten lost, something like that. So they did call the authorities about her missing and there was no law enforcement in Camp Sherman at the time because there was so little crime. Um, and they were able to get a few locals around and start searching. And the search continued on into the next day. Um, so a lot of law enforcement really believed Noel could have killed her and dumped her body. I mean, husband's always the first suspect. Um, yeah. So they're kind of like side-eyeing Noel a little bit. And they heard rumors that like that their marriage wasn't doing so well. And so law enforcement really spent more time like questioning Noel than actually participating in the searches because they're like we'll just get him to crack confess and then we won't even have to worry about searching these woods um so Kay and Noel met in college and they both graduated in 1966 and decided to get married that's when they moved to Eugene Oregon so Kay became the interim director of Planned Parenthood in Eugene, and she was independent and a feminist and she'd gotten really into running um and they were kind of saying like this time was kind of when running started to like take off, like become a thing people do mm -hmm. more so. Um, so she was really into running marathons and races. Um, Noel said they were both kind of independent and there were definitely times they could have communicated better. He was like, we kind of lived our own lives. Like we obviously could have been better, but we weren't perfect. Um, in her office, they did find a calendar that showed Kay did have relationships outside of her marriage, but this was a surprise to Noel. He didn't know she was having an affair. Um, he knew she was unhappy, but not like she was seeing other people. Um, and eventually Noel was cleared as a suspect. So they spent all this time trying to get him to confess and he had nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. So they had no suspects and no clue about what happened to Kay. So months passed with no news. And then in August 1979, a man came into the store in Camp Sherman and wanted to use the phones. He said he'd found some clothing in the woods. 
He said he was rabbit hunting with his dog and found some clothes. Um, and this was kind of a red flag to Gary, who's the shop owner, because he was like, there's not really rabbits in this area. I'm like, you know, Camp Sherman's not known for its rabbit population. <laughs> um, yeah. So the man said he found a pair of shorts, a shirt, and a sweatshirt. So Gary called state police, and the man was really hoping he'd get a reward for reporting this because Kay's family, like, had just said there was, like, a reward for any information. Um, and the man told Christy that he was the last person to see Kay Turner alive. And he was like, oh, isn't this crazy? Like, I found her clothes. I'm the last one to see her alive. So they called the police again, and they sent more police after this detail. And Gary Weston didn't realize it at the time, but this man was John Aykroyd. Is the one who's finding mm-hmm. her clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, and John had said specifically, why did I have to find her? I was the last one to see her alive. Like, those were his exact words. So, sus. Um, John took Gary to where he found the clothes. And the clothes appeared to be, like, on top of pine needles. So, investigators really believe these items have been placed there. Like, it's been eight months. So, they don't think, like nothing in the woods had fallen on them since like there's no way that could have happened no so they found like a scrap from her blue pullover her underwear and remnants of the heel of one of her nikes and they found the other shoe that was still mostly intact they also found her watch um something had caused it to stop and it said like december 24th at 9 27 a.m so again the day she went missing They did find some of her hair, and they also eventually found a lower jawbone and a couple of bones, and they were confirmed to be K-Turners. So police had spoken to John Aykroyd eight months earlier, and when they were searching for K, they started to look for potential suspects, and John's name came up quickly because he'd been seen by another state highway worker who knew John from work. Um, So John said he did see her and he was interviewed on January 11th, but like they only really treated him as a witness. Like they weren't like acting like he was a suspect. They were like, oh, maybe this guy knows information, not he could have done it basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And John was just kind of a local boy that people knew. So I guess they were like, oh yeah, like this guy couldn't have done anything. Um, And again, like the eight months after she disappeared, her friends had put up a thousand dollar reward. And then suddenly he's claiming to have found the clothing in the woods. Weird. Sus. So after John finds her clothing, his story starts to shift and he did fail a polygraph, which we know isn't always 100 percent, but still can be a little bit telling. So they interview him again, and he says he did speak with her and had a brief conversation. He said it was cordial. He said he only talked to her and didn't touch her. But the polygraph revealed that was a lie. So they're like, why are you lying? And he was like, okay, I touched her body in February when she was laying on top of the snow. So this is two months after she disappeared. And Oregon had gotten three feet of snow in February alone. So there's no way she's still on top of the snow. I mean, we just got nine inches of snow. Mm -hmm. Imagine three feet and he's claiming her body's on top of it. No. So he admits to finding a decomposing body in the woods, touches the remains and doesn't tell anyone, even though he knew, like he knows about the search for Kay. He knows people are looking for her. 
Okay. And, and you're going to say that, oh, I found these clothes and I wanted to come forward because I knew this family was searching for her. Oh, but I also found her body a while back, but I'm not, I, mm-hmm. I didn't tell you about that. What? Like, yeah. These people are not stupid, John. Like, what are you doing? Well, <laughs> well maybe they are. Maybe I'll tell you about it. We'll see. <laughs> um. <laughs> so he also like gives a lot of details about her body when he saw her like in February, like he was saying her throat was slashed. There was a gunshot wound to the chest. Um, A lot of details that a lot of people think just by finding bones, you wouldn't know. And that he clearly saw her earlier. And soon he also revealed that he wasn't alone. He's with Roger Dale Beck that day too. He was like, I was with my buddy too. Like both of us were there. So police interview Roger and his wife, Pam, and Pam provided an alibi for Roger and John. She said John arrived at their house on Christmas Eve morning, and they did not go out that day at all, that they were home all day. So there's a lot of like circumstantial evidence pointing to John, but no physical evidence. And now with this supposed alibi, they just move on. Everyone believes he did it, but they never try to charge him or proceed with any of that. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, back to 1990. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> there's, there's no physical evidence, but the man literally had her fucking clothes. Yeah. Uh. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm listening. Yeah. So, I guess they're thinking this supposed alibi Ugh. will be too much reasonable doubt to proceed and again these are like small town i mean camp sherman didn't even have a police force so who knows how much Uh, training the cops handling this even had not a lot i can probably tell you that but yeah the police don't don't get better in this story i mean cool 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 (laughs) i guess a little bit at some point but not in the 70s let's Mm. tell you that (laughs) yeah so back to 1990 with Richanda missing, John Aykroyd's interviewed by the police. Um, John went to, said he went to work that day. He came home early, which appears isn't unusual. Like sometimes he would just come home kind of in the middle of the day. Um, he talks to Richanda, then leaves. He comes back and doesn't see her, but he also doesn't seem concerned. Um, so John then starts telling the police on how she disappeared, that he was just like all over Linda and how they had sex. And he's like going into details and he was saying it was like the best sex of their married life. This is on the evening. Like they come home and Richanda isn't there. Gross. Like what? Yeah. So he's like, (sighs) you come home and your 13 year old stepdaughter is missing. And you're talking to the police and you just start talking about the sex you had with your wife that night when your stepdaughter's missing. Wow. Wow. So some of Richanda's friends noticed some signs of abuse during her life when living with John Aykroyd. So when Richanda was nine or 10, she started coming to school with signs of abuse. Like she wasn't doing her hair, which was like always a big deal to her. Like she'd always have her hair done. Um, She was really anxious. She was not smiling as much and just seemed sad. Um, A friend also remembers she'd come to school one day with a black eye and a cut underneath of it. Um, Two of her friends had abusive stepfathers. And one day, like, they said she told them, like, 
what's happening to you is happening to me. So she told them like, he is abusing me. She said that John Aykroyd was coming into her room, like in the middle of the night. Uh, Byron remembers one night when he was 14 and Richanda was 13. Linda was gone. So only Byron, John and Richanda were there. And Byron remembers waking up and finding John in Richanda's bedroom and like kneeling on the side of her bed. And so Byron's like, what's going on here? And John's like, oh, she was having a nightmare. I just came in to like help her. But like hindsight, we know what was happening. Yeah. Um, one day, Richanda did finally tell a trusted adult about what was happening to her, but her friends didn't ever hear anything more. And one of those friends had actually told the same adult and was told they didn't believe they were telling the truth. So, mm-hmm. yeah, Ugh. likely the same probably happened to Richanda, where they told them and then they were just like, oh, there's not enough proof. We don't really think you're telling the truth and didn't do anything. So sad. Um, Byron also spoke about the beatings and spankings they would get as children that he knew wasn't normal. Like he knew it was more excessive. And John had even like specially made a paddle that he would use to discipline Rochanda with. So a very, very abusive household. So John would also come up with these theories of what happened or who would do this. Like, oh, I bet they came in and took Rachanda and drove her down this road. Like, he would come up with these, like, big theories and stories and what type mm-hmm. of person and all. The doc- The documentary has, like, a lot of his, like, police interview recordings, but it's just ramblings, honestly. Um, and Rachanda's cousin, Jennifer Pressinger, was with John a few months after Rachanda disappeared. And he, like, went down this, like, really secluded road and said, you know, you could hide a body in here and nobody would ever find it. And she was like, yeah. And then he was like, do you need to go to the bathroom? Like, do you need to get out and go to the bathroom? And she was like, no. And she was like, I was about to pee myself, but something told me, like, do not get out of this truck. Like, I cannot. Yeah, And she was really scared. And she said she'd never been scared of John like that. Like previously in like the documentary, she was like, John to me was always like a safe person. Like he was never violent with me. He was never, besides his instance, like uncomfortable around me. She was like, there were a lot of men like that in my life, but John was not that person to me. So she was like, then this happens. And like, I get this feeling like if I get out of this truck, like he might do something to me. Um, there were also reports from people who knew John in school and there was a story of him like setting a rabbit on fire, which is not great, but just wanted to include that in here. Yeah. So on the day of the search, a detective was teamed up with John, like the day they were searching for Rochanda. He said he kept making weird comments like about Richanda's breast size and her period and what she was wearing. And he also kept referring to her in the past tense. And then he decided to change the subject. And that's when he starts talking about Kay Turner. Which is kind of odd. Like your missing stepdaughter. And then now you're going to bring up a crime from 12 years ago. <laughs> I mean, maybe there is so little crime here that he's like, oh, this reminds me of this. But... Kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this other person that you were questioned in her murder. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. That everyone thinks you did. And now you're mm-hmm. like, I'm going to bring this up. Yeah, that's the a smart thing to do. Yeah. So they searched for Richanda everywhere and they could not find her. There was blood on a rope found in John's truck, but 
for Chan to live there. So there's multiple times she could have bled there. She could have gotten a nosebleed. She could have caught her, cut her finger. Like it's, you can't pinpoint it to that exact day. Mm-hmm. And at the time they didn't have a body. And it, in that time you couldn't really like try a case without a body. Like that's still something rarely done. Um, and they really couldn't prove that she was actually dead. Like at this point they were like, I mean, there is a chance she's kidnapped and or run away somewhere. Um, but the searches stopped before school even started. Um, however, the encounter with Kay Turner was not the only strange encounter that John had before Richanda's disappearance. So John had a violent encounter with a stranger the year before Kay went missing. So Bill and Marlene Gabrielson went to the rodeo in Sisters, Oregon in 1977. So Marlene got all dressed up. Um, they'd recently had a baby, so she was, like, ready to, you know, dress up for a day out. Like, all that time of growing a human and birthing mm-hmm. a human, you're like, okay, I'm ready to, like, Breastfeeding be myself a human, again. And, like, you're in your right? sweatpants. Like, you're <laughs> right. like, I'm ready to look hot again. <laughs> yes, like, I want to go out and look nice. Um, and she was also wearing a special pair of boots that her husband had bought for her. And so she started drinking some beers and, you know, it hit her rather fast as it does when you've been pregnant, breastfeeding, you know, whatever, and you haven't been drinking for a long period of time. And Bill ran into a few of his friends and they wanted to go to a bar and drink, but Marlene wouldn't be able to get in. So she was 19 and you had to be 21 in Oregon to go to a bar. And she was kind of upset because it was supposed to be their night out, but Bill hadn't seen these friends in a while and wanted to go with them. So Marlene was like, okay, that's fine. I'm going to go ahead and head home. And she was used to hitchhiking because we talked about before, like it was pretty common in those days, not really an unusual thing to do. So Marlene went to Highway 20 and the first ride she got was John Aykroyd. Um, She did end up falling asleep and she woke up and like felt her feet being dragged and he was dragging her by her feet from the passenger side and was like hitting her head on the seats, the floor, the steps, just like literally dragging her out of this car. John then put a knife to her throat and said, you're going to do everything I fucking tell you to do, aren't you? And Marlene said that she would as long as he didn't hurt her. John then ripped her pants off and cut her boots off. John raped Marlene and said, now what do I do with you? And Marlene asked him to take her home. Um, She was just doing everything she could to get home to her baby again that she's left for probably the first time. Um, She had John drop her off at Bill's mom's house, so they called the police, and the police took a report, and then Marlene went to the hospital to do the rape kit. They then asked her to submit a polygraph test, which, for your rape kit, you have Mm -hmm. to submit a polygraph test? Mm -hmm. And they asked her if she did drugs, how much did she drink, did she flirt with him? Yeah, I told you the cops don't get better. Like, I, like, feel my face getting hot right now. Like, just Mm -hmm. the fury that... Yeah. Okay. So, John said that Marlene came on to him and he just submitted to her. And so, the detective was like, yeah, that sounds about right. I just cannot believe this. Um, The detectives just made Marlene feel, like, small and like a liar. And they just clearly believed John over Marlene. And Marlene said to this day that she still has, like, trauma and nightmares about that night. Um, She even accidentally gave her husband a black eye one night in her sleep. And Marlene said that she was just so scared that John was going to come back for her. Um, She was always paranoid about making sure the doors were locked and that she was safe. And, yeah, it's just, like, something she's lived with up to this day of, like, that trauma. And, like, this is such, like, a minor part. But, like, the boots her husband bought her, she was, like, my husband went 
without for a long time because we couldn't afford them. And like, I really wanted them and he bought them for me. And then like this happens where he just like cuts them cuts off them and off. like, Ugh. it's a small part, but it's just like the trauma of like all of that. And like, I have to get home to my baby. Like I can't leave my baby motherless. Yeah. Like, what am I going to do? Like such a sad event. And then how she was treated is like so horrible. And the fact that you know exactly who did this to you. It's not even like, oh, this was mm -hmm. a stranger that I don't know. The police can't find out. The police can't catch him. Like, I know who it is. I told you who it was. He admitted that we had sex, but he claimed that I came on to him. And they're just like, yeah, yeah, we yeah. believe it. Yeah. <sighs> so after Rachanda went missing, a lot of the women in Santium Junction pressured the state to relocate him. Um, so there's now at least like three instances of him being violent with women. They're like, can we please get this guy out of here? Um, and there were a lot of women alone with like one phone for all of the houses. Cause again, this is a very, you know, small area. It's not like everyone has their own way to reach someone. Like they're all like mm -hmm. sharing this phone line. So they're like, we don't feel safe here. So in 1990, they transferred him to Corvallis highway department. Um, so Corvallis is where Oregon state university is located. So not really a great spot for someone accused of hurting three women so far. Like that's a great place. Just, to send just him. put them right where there's hundreds yeah. of young college girls, all the young college girls. That's the place we want to send this rapist to, of course. So they moved him here claiming that it's so police could monitor him. Um, but John was like a roving field mechanic. So he could be driving upwards of 130 miles a day. So it's like he's all over the place. Like, what do you mean you're going to mm -hmm. monitor him? Like, he's literally everywhere. Yeah, like There's no way he to works for the him. highway department. Like, his whole job is to drive around and, like, yeah, help people on the road or clear something off the road. Like, that's his whole job is driving. So, like, how yeah. are you monitoring him by just moving him somewhere? Like, give him a desk job. Exactly. So Lebanon is a small town, um, about 25 minutes from Corvallis and about 20 minutes from Sweet Home. So the local hangout was at Sherry's on Highway 20. Um, and in the local cars, they all had CB radio so they could just like talk to one another. And they all had different handles like Bunny, Lady Know-It-All, Knight Rider, you know, fun stuff like that. And in 1992, John eventually started coming around and he made his CB radio handle the pervert. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So everyone thought this was kind of odd, because it is. Um, and he really only talked to Melissa Sanders and Sheila Swanson. So they were young, they were best friends. Melissa loved to have fun and would like bounce around. So Melissa was very like tough talking and independent. Um, and Sheila carried around her baby book to like remind her of when she was happier. Um, she also often wore a black leather jacket. So Melissa and Sheila were a little rebellious, like we all are as teenage girls, um, and they had met around December of 1991, and they didn't really have the best upbringing, um, so they're usually trying to, like, find a way to get food or, like, even go to someone else's house for a shower, and Sheila spent frequent time away from her house, and it seemed like Melissa may have had an abusive upbringing as well. Um, they both had dropped out of high school, and John became very obsessed with Melissa and eventually kind of possessive. But he never bought anything for Sheila, only Melissa. Um, and he was, like, always trying to touch her. But Melissa viewed John as, like, an older figure, you know, like a father figure, someone to look out for her. But clearly, John was trying to groom her. Mm-hmm. And in May of 1992, Melissa was excited because she was taking a camping trip with her family for a family reunion, and she was able to take Sheila with her. 
So John was around when they were talking about it and started asking like where they were going camping. She said she wasn't sure, but it was somewhere near Newport. And now all of a sudden, John says he's throwing a party in Newport on Saturday night. So what a crazy. Wow. So Melissa and Sheila were supposed to spend the whole weekend at the campsite, but they wanted to try to leave to go to this party. And eventually, Melissa and Sheila just didn't end up showing back up. Um, They thought maybe they had gotten a ride with friends and left. However, Melissa's family got concerned when they went back to Sweet Home and she wasn't there. Her father waited a few more days and then called police. Police also spoke with Sheila's mom in Lebanon, who said that she hadn't heard from her. Um, She had been hanging up missing posters, but hadn't called the police yet. Because it was kind of common for them to, like, not come home, but, like, not to, like, not call kind of but like that's why they kind of didn't report it to the police immediately i don't want people to be like what in the world why wouldn't you do that And i'm like but also they were camping and woke up and they were gone and they were like sounds about right they just left because they didn't want to be here anymore like yeah kind of thing and like we said like it's very typical kind of how they were anyway like they were always Mm -hmm. like oh me go to this person's house like never really home and just kind of bouncing around all over the place anyway yeah Mm mm-hmm So they officially went missing on May 3rd. Um, Like we said, not unusual for them to, like, go somewhere, but was kind of odd for them to, like, not call or check in. Um, Their parents did call the police repeatedly, but they just kept putting them on the back burner. So now we have the opposite of, oh, why are you calling already? Mm -hmm. It's just a runaway. Yeah. Um, But unfortunately, they did find their bodies in October of 1992. So at the crime scene, Sheila and Melissa were found about 50 feet off of Hayes Creek Road. Um, Sheila's ankles were bound with leggings. Her sneakers and socks were still on her feet. Um, Part of Melissa's body was missing, but she was found nude. Um, They're not sure how they died, but there were areas that appeared to um, possibly be stab wounds on their body. And near Sheila's body, they also found a piece of rivet, which is like a mechanical fastener, not really something that Melissa or Sheila would typically have, um, but would be something that a mechanic might have. Um, And remember, John is a mechanic. Um, They also found a beaded seat cushion, which was something almost all of the Oregon Department of Transportation co-workers had. And it was also missing out of John's truck when it was searched. Yeah. So around the time of Rochana going missing, detectives decide to start looking more into Kay Turner's murder. So again, John's alibi for Kay Turner was Pam. Um, Pam had divorced Roger and moved to California, so they decided to go see her. And of course, now she says that she lied about her alibi, to no one's surprise. Yeah, the detective was like, I showed up to the door and she was like, I was wondering when you would come. I lied. Like, basically being like, I I was waiting for you to come. Like, Like, okay, so why didn't you reach out, Pam? Like, I mean, you shouldn't have lied in the first place. But at this point, you divorced, like, you lied for your husband. Okay, whatever. You divorced your husband. You've moved out of state. Why didn't you come forward before this point? Why are you waiting for them to come to you? Yeah. I mean, maybe she doesn't trust the police. (sighs) I mean. (laughs) Yeah. Um, They're not giving her much reason to trust them in That is true. That is true. So Pam said at the time of Kay's disappearance that Roger and John had come in like with blood on them and they made statements to her about accidentally killing a jogger. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Yeah. So before this, Roger Beck was not a suspect, but now they're looking at possibly two defendants. So Roger Beck also in this time had been convicted of a sex crime in Minnesota and served seven months in prison. 
So with newer technology, they decided to try and send Kay's clothes that were found for testing. Um, the lab found that the tears in her shirt were from a stab wound, um, and they also found lead fragments on her shirt that were determined to be from bullet holes. So John then started doing media interviews about finding the body, and he gave pretty detailed descriptions, but they were able to find a forensic anthropologist to say that to know in that detail, he would have had to have seen her within two or three days of her murder. So he's claiming, like, to find her once it was most skeletal remains, and they're like, no, that's not how it would have been. Yeah, um, like, if he knew this many details about stabbing and gunshots, which are then corroborated with the forensic testing, mm -hmm. like, he would have had to have seen her a few, like, within a few days yeah. of her murder and not when they found skeletal remains. Exactly. Like, you saw more of her body than just the skeleton months later, as you claim. Um, he also claimed in the interview that police knew Roger Beck killed her. And he said he didn't really know Roger, just like a friend of a friend, which is a lie because they have been best friends since high school. <laughs> yeah. He's just so. like going to the media being like, I don't know who's, he was like, I think his name's Roger. I think they said his last name's Beck. And it's like, <laughs> he's your best friend. Oh, Why are you pretending God. you don't know him? Good Lord. So, John Aykroyd and Roger Beck were charged with kidnapping, raping, and murdering Kay Turner in June of 1992. Um, in October of 1993, John went to trial, but he did not testify. Um, another woman testified there as well, and she said that she had a brush with John a few months prior to Kay's murder. So, Jane Morris was 24 years old at the time. Um, she was on her bike and heading home from a waitressing job when she noticed John standing near his pickup truck along the side of the road in Camp Sherman. He pointed a handgun at her and ordered her to stop. Jane crouched and rushed past him and rode towards the local country store. So the media interview was a really damning piece of evidence to show that this man is obviously a liar. Um, yeah, it just kind of shows like who he is. Like, yeah. Yeah. So John Aykroyd was found guilty of killing Kay Turner. Um, Roger Beck would have his trial in April of 1994, and he would eventually be convicted as well, and he received a life sentence. So in 2012, there was a chance that John could get paroled. So they decided to go to talk to him to see if he'll talk about what happened to Rochanda. However, John said he never killed Rochanda or Kay Turner, and he's innocent. He said he's never killed anyone else in his life. So in 2013, they decided to try and charge John with Rochanda's murder, um, and John cut a deal with Lynn County authorities to enter a no-contest plea for Rochanda's death, and in exchange, he would give up on parole. So the judge accepted the plea and then sealed the record, which was very odd, um, so he would now spend the rest of his life in prison. However, he never revealed where Rochanda was, which is just like... Yeah. I don't want really to talk sad. on my ass because I may talk about something in a second that I don't know is coming, but it's like you kind of get closure, but not really. Cause it's like, yeah, like he pleaded no contest and he's like, okay, like I'm not going to go through all that trial, but like, I'll just stay in prison forever and not try to get parole. Like you're admitting that you did it, but you're not admitting that you did it and you're not revealing where she is so that her family can bury her. Yeah. And it's super weird too, because like in the documentary, they were like, we asked a lot of like, organ lawyers like is it common to then seal a record because sealing a record means it is not public record people cannot go yeah. and look at it that means That's like very weird nobody can and they're like we've never heard this ever happen so it's like why like all she got was like a no contest plea and then sealed the record so like 
no one even really, if you look up his record, it won't even really come up. That's so weird. It's weird. Yeah. So Melissa and Sheila's cases were reopened in 2012 to try and find out what happened to them. So around the time of their disappearance, one of the ODOT workers was working late and heard a loud noise. So he went outside and saw John getting out of his truck, and John's arms from his fingers to his elbows were covered in dry blood. Both of his arms. So the ODOT worker first asked if he was okay and thought that, like, it seemed like too much blood to be his because you're standing, you're acting normal, and you're literally covered in blood. Yeah, um, he's first like, are you okay? And then he's like, uh, that doesn't seem like your blood. Is everyone else okay? Yeah. yeah. So John said he was coming back from Newport and some guy had hit a deer and he helped him like salvage some of the meat. So the coworker didn't really think anything of it until John was arrested for Kay's murder. So the task force is forming a good circumstantial case. Um, they thought since John was serving a life sentence, it would be too expensive to prosecute him for Melissa and Sheila's murders. Then John died in the Oregon State Penitentiary at the age of 67 on December 30th, 2016. Um, his cause of death was heart disease, and apparently the state had to continue to pay out his pension of $3,624 a month so he would be able to stock his cell with junk food, processed meats and cheeses, and candy bars. Um, and he just didn't really leave his cell much. So, this Which I like, really hope Oregon passed some law after this where it's like, I don't have to keep paying you your retirement pension when you're, you're a convicted in murderer for life. Like a what? Murderer. Hopefully That's they crazy. hopefully they figured out how to how to fix that after yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, hopefully they wrote that into law. Like we can't have this happen again. Um, so there were clusters of disappearances in the 1970s along Highway 20. So John started working as an ODOT worker in 1978, and there's no telling how many women he came across, like maybe stranded, you know, like you're supposed to be someone coming along to help them, like someone they can trust. And again, mm -hmm. it's the 70s. It's not like people have like very accurate like records of where they're at at all times. You know, it's not like someone could easily see where you left. Yeah, it's like something. the same thing. Like you're broken down the side of the road and you see like a police car show up and you're like, yeah. oh, thank, thank goodness. goodness. Because yeah. this person will help me. And it's like, but you also don't know this is the worst person in the world, basically. Exactly. Um, and it's impossible to know how many more women he attacked and killed. There are a few unidentified women who were found along the highway. Um, so one set of skeletal remains is known as Swamp Mountain Doe. Um, she was under 30 years old, but that's all they really know. And about 10 miles from that is where they found Snow Creek Doe, which is another set of skeletal remains. Um, around this area as well is where Elizabeth Musler was found at Thistle Creek Boat Ramp. So Elizabeth lived in the Jolly Roger Apartments on Highway 20, and John's younger sister also lived in the same apartment complex. So Elizabeth Musler was last seen waiting in the parking lot for her dad to pick her up for an eye appointment, and then she was never seen again. Another few miles away, Karen Lee, who was 14 years old, and Rodney Grissom, who was 15 years old, were found. Um, they had last been seen near Lebanon and were believed to have possibly run away. Um, they were believed to be trying to make it to California. Um, Karen Lee was talking on a payphone in Lebanon and said, I got to go. My ride's here. And the logging crew found clothing in 1978 that belonged to Karen. Karen's mother, Violet Gilmore, believes that John Aykroyd is the one who killed Karen and Rodney. Um, they disappeared just a year before Kay Turner's murder. 
Four years later, about a quarter of a mile away, Rodney's clothing and some other articles were found, and all of these victims or their belongings were found near Highway 20, where John would have worked, lived, hunted, fished, just generally been. Um, and he knew these areas mm-hmm. very well, so it is very possible these cases are associated with him. And that is the horrible murders of these women along Highway 20. Yeah, as far as we know, for sure, Rashanda Pickle, Kay Turner, um, Melissa Sanders, and Sheila Swanson, um, in addition to, you know, Elizabeth Musler, Karen Lee, Rodney Grisham, Swamp Mountain Doe, Snow Creek Doe, um, also with Marlene, who mm-hmm. was a surviving victim of him, and who knows how many other like surviving victims and also just how many other victims that just haven't been found. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, especially in that kind of situation where you come across somebody who's on the side of the road, who could be someone who has run away and that was their intention. So mm-hmm. people didn't really, they weren't really concerned. Like when that person never came back, cause maybe you are headed to California or somewhere else. Um, like Karen and Rodney, like they were like, yeah. we're going to California. We're running away. Like we're getting there. Exactly. I mean, even though they were runaways, though, like people still knew where they were trying to go. Like, yeah. But just yeah. so sad. And just like, what? Like, what a horrible human being, but what a dumb human being who's just like all over the news, like talking about these murders that we know that he committed. <laughs> like, yeah. Just on the news, uh, talking about it, pretending not to know his high school best friend, just getting so bold to murder his stepdaughter. Yeah. In his like someone who lived in his own household, like he's clearly escalating. He was clearly like just getting way too comfortable with mm-hmm. getting away with murder. And like a lot of people say how sad it was that like he killed Sheila and Melissa. I mean, I'm convinced he was responsible for them. Like yeah. in May 1992. And then they weren't able to like arrest him until like June 1992. And they're like, how many people could have been saved if Exactly. He was arrested back in 1978. And how many people could have been saved if, like, they were able to get it together quicker? Because, like, even in the documentary, like, once Rashanda went missing, they were like, okay, let's try to make sure we have, like, all the Kay Turner documents and the Rashanda Pickle documents together. And he was like, they were just everywhere. Like, every department had, every different law enforcement department had something mm. that they just weren't sharing with each other. Like, it was just all over the place. So, yeah, just so sad. Which I get, like, if there's no evidence, like, you can't arrest someone. But, like, he brought you her clothes and was like, oh, I just, mm-hmm. like, was clearly lying about it. Like, oh, I just found them laying here in the woods when they would have been here for eight months and there's no disturbances. Nothing's on top of them. They haven't been moved. Like. <sighs> yeah. And just poor Noel, who was, like, treated as a suspect for so yeah. long and then had to find out, like, his missing wife was also, like cheating on him (laughs) like just so much trauma there and like byron was absolutely heartbreaking in the documentary where he's like i was supposed to protect her like she was my sister like we were supposed to be there for each other and like even to this day like can't get like he doesn't know where she is yeah and was there evidence that was missed for John because they were focused on Noel as the murderer. And they're like, oh, like, Mm -hmm. this guy did it. Like, we're just pursuing him, pursuing him, trying to get him to confess. And we're ignoring anything that doesn't fit this little pretty package. Mm -hmm. 
And did you miss something that you could have used to convict And like John when you were time? interviewing him, you were like, oh, he's just a witness. He just yeah. saw her running, not maybe we should ask a little bit deeper because you're too busy probably being like, Noel did it. Like yeah, the husband exactly. did it. The husband brought her on this romantic weekend just to kill her. <sighs> so yeah. sad. Okay, well, um, time for now our, we're all depressed. Yeah, <laughs> our awkward transition. Courtney, what is your perk of the week? So my perk of the week is that this week um, I battled the snow and ice storm <laughs> to make my way downtown um, to go see Wicked, and it yes. was so good. It was Ugh. so so good. Oh, it was incredible, and it was my Christmas present to my mom and my sister. And unfortunately, my sister could not leave her house her whole neighborhood was a sheet of ice but Mm -hmm. she also has like two kids and two dogs that was then like well if we get her out then Then what do we do with the rest of her household yeah that's those you can't even if you got the kids somewhere you couldn't really leave the dogs like it Mm -hmm. was just a mess and like my parents went over that day and it was like ice like everywhere so um basically um i asked my dad i was like dad do you want to go see wicked and he was like (laughs) sure like i'm driving your mom downtown anyway might as well um and he really enjoyed it too so that was fun like he didn't know anything about wicked like he didn't know anything like he i was like have you heard defying gravity and he was like i don't know um (laughs) (laughs) and then he said later like it kind of like he was like the tune sounded familiar but he really enjoyed it too and was like talking about it so that was fun to get out and get to go with my parents and go see Wicked. And I was really scared that I wasn't going to be able to make it. But thankfully, yeah, it proceeded on. Was it was the audience pretty packed or was it more empty? Oh, yeah, it was sold. Everyone it, else was everyone. like, we will get here. Mm-hmm. Well, because, <laughs> we yeah, basically, here. I mean, everyone, it's a traveling crew. So they're all staying downtown mm-hmm. and they have like they can't read because everyone's like, why don't you just reschedule it? And I'm like. Because they got to be in a different city in, like, exactly. two days after like, this. There's and, no rescheduling. And there's also, like, contracts. Like, with Hamilton last year, it was like, we will not come unless you make us this amount of money, basically. Mm, yeah. So that's kind of how it was with this, where it's like, you can't just cancel it. And then people were selling their tickets for an absurd amount of money. Yeah. Absurd. And I'm like, you're saying you can't go and you're trying to sell your ticket for $400? Like, are you insane? Like, maybe just try anyway. to make your money back and not. Because <laughs> that's what I was going to do. Because, like, Kevin was not interested. Kevin, mm-hmm. musicals are not Kevin's thing. He's like, please mm-hmm. don't make me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so if my dad didn't want to go, I was just going to be like, I'm selling it for, like, what I paid for it. Yeah. Or whatever you'll get me for it at this point. Yeah. Like, just, I'm just to make money to back. Even, like, try to get something. <laughs> yeah. So. But it was really good. And it was really fun. Yeah. And nice to go see it with my parents. So. We didn't fall. We <laughs> we we made it. <laughs> but, well, I'm very glad you were still able to make it because I know you were looking forward to that, and that would have sucked if you yeah. weren't able to go because of the weather. Yeah, I would have. I would have walked my butt down there. <laughs> by myself, yeah, at least you live close enough that you could have walked. Yeah, there. that's that's the benefit. Is I could like yeah. and like when my parents picked me up, like I wouldn't let them come down my road because it's mm-hmm. like it's still kind of icy out there. Yeah, so definitely. But yeah, so that is my perk of the week, Jacqueline. What is your perk of the week? So my perk of the week, since I've literally been in my house this entire week, haven't really gone anywhere or done anything. Um, it's It has been a pain in the ass, but my perk of the week does have to be the snow because it was nice those first couple of days, you know, kind of mm-hmm. got over it. Glad we don't have to deal with this. We like the snow, basis. we just didn't like the ice. Exactly. Like if it could just be snow, but I could 
also leave my house. Perfect. Beautiful. Love it. Um, but no, it was very nice to actually get to see more snow than I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, and my daughter just had so much fun. Like she loves it. She got to make a snow angel, which was really funny because she is struggling with like moving her arms and legs at the same time. So she like goes back and forth. She like does her arms and then her legs and then her arms. And, like, no, you gotta <laughs> Can't do do both. it at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> It's really funny to watch her try. Um, but she loved that. And, you know, of course, we had to have snowball fights and just all the fun stuff. And it was funny. The very first day I told her, like, we thankfully we were already off work that day because, um, you know, we work from home. So now you don't get snow days. You just got to work in the snow. Um, mm -hmm. But we were off for um, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And so we got to go play in the snow like that morning. And we came inside and had hot chocolate. And I was like, Millie, like every time we have a snow day, we'll come in and have hot chocolate. Well, now girlfriend thinks because there's snow on the ground, she gets hot chocolate every day. And I was like, OK, I didn't think this through because I'm not used yeah. to there being a snow day for eight days in a row. <laughs> <laughs> well but don't we worry it chocolate. is supposed to get up into the 60s this week and that's rain true so yeah. we had negative temperatures last week and now we're going to be in the 60s so and now that's... we're probably going to have flash flooding because we're gonna have all this rain that's on top of all this melting snow. i know that's what my boss said he was like yeah now time for the flash floods yeah <laughs> so it's a great time down here in tennessee <laughs> but oh, we're having so much fun yes if you guys want to tell us um about what your weather is doing. Uh, did you get to see Wicked this year or something else really cool this year? What do you think about this case? Um, all the good stuff. We're in the show notes. You know where to find us. Again, if you want to be like Julie and come join us over on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash caffeinated crimes. Not going to go into the whole spiel again. Already did. Courtney, take it away. And if you'll please be sure to give us five stars on Spotify or Apple, if you can like and subscribe on all those platforms and on YouTube and leave nice comments. Um, but in the meantime, go have a cup of coffee. And don't commit a crime. <laughs>